to Podiatry Today podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the managing editor of Podiatry Today. What do you wish you had known before embarking on your podiatric practice? Our guests today, Dr. Emily Quinn and Dr. Jacqueline Donovan, share their answers to that very question, from practice setting and relationships with other specialties to mentorship and how to ask the right questions. Both Dr. Quinn and Dr. Donovan are diplomats of the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery and fellows of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. Thanks so much to both of you for being with us today, and welcome back. For context, could each of you first please share with us your general professional trajectory, such as where you trained, where you currently practice, how long you've been practicing, and any particular focuses you might have? Yes, yeah, so this is Emily Quinn. I have been in practice since 2015. I am a board certified through the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgery in Foot and Reconstructive Rear Foot and Ankle Surgery. I did my training, um, which was a three-year reconstructive rear foot and ankle residency at Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio, un- Ohio under residency director Christopher Heyer um, and many other nationally, internationally known foot and ankle surgeons. I took my first job at a large private practice group in Georgia. I was with them for about four years and I left on very good terms to take a hospital employed position to be closer to family. I stayed in that job for about two years and then actually decided to go back to my original private practice group. Um, My focus is on overall comprehensive podiatric care, including non-surgical, surgical, surgical, and wound care. I'm on staff at two hospitals and in private practice in a rural setting in Southern Georgia. So Dr. Quinn and I did surgical residency together at Grant Medical Center. We both graduated in 2015, but where I differed was I went on to do an orthotrauma fellowship at Grant Medical Center was where we trained in residency. I did the fellowship alongside MDs and DOs, and they let me as a DPM do that fellowship with them for that one year. And then I went into private practice also in Columbus for about four years. And during that time, I focused primarily on reconstructive surgery and limb salvage. Since then, I have moved to Cleveland over the past year, and I have moved on to more full, comprehensive podiatric practice, and I do everything from ingrown toenails to Charcot recons, ankle fractures, and uh, it's very extensive. And like I said, I think Emily has a very unique perspective on this because she did work for a hospital system. I think my background gives us a little bit of a perspective because I've worked with multiple residency and fellowship programs to see residents and fellows at different stages in their career. So now that you've reached this stage of your professional career, what are the top thing or things that you wish you had known prior to entering practice? So I'll start with- There's so many. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many. I'll start with board certification process. So one thing I wish I would have understood in residency, I had no idea there were two different board certifications. I didn't realize there was ABPM and ABFAS because our program was very surgically based and we spent- almost every single day in the operating room, all day, every day. And that was our primary focus. So I only thought there were two options, which was forefoot and rear foot. I didn't realize that there was ABPM. So knowing that that exists is fantastic for the non-surgical people. That's an option. If you don't want to operate and you want to do podiatric medicine, there's a board certification process for that. And I I think that's really important to know from the get-go and just be educated on these different certifying boards and what your area recognizes based on qualification and certification processes. I'll bounce off of that and just kind of say that, you know, board certification starts the day you start residency. And now that we're both completely board certified through ABFAS, 
looking back, like the first year of in-training exams, I can tell you, I just kind of took the test and walked away. Now with the way the certification process is, like that actually is setting you up for your qualifying exam all the way through your certifying exam. So taking those things seriously from day one will ultimately give you the best success. So I 110% agree with that. And now that the board qualifying test is the third year in training, I think it was a light bulb to all residents that, wow, if we do well on those in training, we probably don't even have to study for board qualification tests, which is fantastic. That process is the same certifying board. So that's the same test that you're going to sit for when you take your board certification. And those are really the same, the same way you're sitting for your CVPS is how you're going to submit for your cases. So if you do those all as a stepwise approach, you'll pass your case submission and you'll pass your CBPS portion at a board certifying, which no one really educated us on that in residency. The one thing I will say is our residency had a lot of young doctors or young attendings who were fresh out and were going through this process. So we were familiar with it. And I think this is lacking nationwide because there's a lot of docs who are fantastic and they're world renowned, but they've taken boards 20, 30 years ago. And the case submission process has evolved and has changed. So staying up on those topics are fantastic to so you can be fresh with all this information. And then off of the case submission, that starts the day you start your fellowship or your job. As you're documenting, those documents are really important to get you through case submission. So I think knowing what case submission means the day you start whatever position you take ultimately will give you success in the end. Right. And I, mean, I can habits, talk about boards forever. Good, good habits that you start in residency, logging your cases, you should do as an attending as well. And it is almost identical to how you log cases as a, as a dietary resident to how you log them as an attending. So if you get in the habit of doing it, you don't need to refresh your memory on how to log these cases. It's muscle memory and you know how to do it from residency. The one habit that I got and a rule in our residency was you had to log the cases by the end of the month, but I did it weekly because we had such high volume and I continued that through, through being an attending. I cannot tell you the number of attendings that I've met who have not logged a case and are five, six years in practice. There is no way that that's going to be an easy process to go back. You will fail boards as soon as you submit showing that you have enough cases because they have to match your logs and be identical. So getting in those good habits right from the get-go. And I think that's why a lot of people are falling out of favor for sitting for these boards. And they're very simple things to do from the get-go. I'm very passionate about this because I want us all to thrive. I want our profession to thrive. And if we do these little simple things in the beginning, everyone will pass their boards. You just have to get in these good habits from the get-go. Um, something else I think that I wish I would have looked into more as like a student resident or a fellow um, is the billing and coding side of medicine. We're very, very well trained educationally and surgically, but I had no idea how to bill. And some of that, actually most of that falls on me as a resident. I should have been asking the questions and um, looking at how the surgeries were being billed. So I think that is something that's huge in the early parts of the career is learning those billing and coding early and then finding people that know billing and coding as you get into practice. So you have someone to communicate with as you have questions. Absolutely. And I you're speaking to an intern today, actually about reading every night and in residency, I, we were hammered with surgical training. And I think in my, the way I function, I only have so much space in my brain. I, I can 
fill it with surgery and boards prep, but there was no way in residency I was filling my brain with coding and billing information because I was so overwhelmed with this trajectory that I wanted to take surgically and with being board certified. With that being said, if you're a residency, if you're not in the operating room for 15 hours a day and you're done early, you should use that time to educate yourself. And if you feel comfortable with surgery, then go on to the next thing. And that's billing and coding. Or go on to, there's webinars out the yin-yang right now for, for this information or podcasts like this that you can listen to and fill your mind with as much education as you can. Because even though you don't think it now, you have the most time in residency because you're dedicated to this profession for those three years. So every single night, if there's something that you didn't know, look it up immediately, whether that be billing and coding, just surgical textbooks and go and go from there. I think really taking your education in your own hands and pushing yourself to the limits during those three years are the best advice anyone could have given me in residency. A APMA and um, ACFAS both have really good billing coding courses and APMA also has really good webinars that people should be accessing if they don't, if they aren't sure where to go. The other thing I think to really think about in residency is you, you go to a very intense program, you have all this training, and I did a fellowship, I did an MDPO fellowship, and I thought, I'm going to get the best job out there. And then when I thought about it, I didn't know what the best job out there was. What did I want? What was a good offer? What was reasonable? And all of these things can look fantastic on paper. And as soon as you step foot in that clinic, there's nothing that they can write on a contract that's going to make it the perfect fit for you. So it's finding what you want out of your, out of your job. And if you trust these people and you think they're going to look out for you and give you what you want out of, out of your career, essentially. I think the one thing that I looked at was volume to pass my boards. I wanted to get that done as soon as possible. And I, I wanted to make sure I had the variety. And that's what my main focus in getting my first job was. It wasn't the salary. It wasn't the benefits. It was just getting that volume to check that box off and be done with it. Now, if that's something that you don't really care about, then you can look at other qualities to have in a job, but know that on paper, everyone asks, the residents ask me, what's a good salary? What's a good bonus structure? What's a good benefit package? And I think most private practitioners look for you to put your time in before they offer that, number one. Number two, if you go to a hospital system, which Emily can touch on better than I can, you don't have a lot of control over how you're treated by the other specialties. So you may have a fantastic salary and 401k and wonderful health insurance, but you could hate your job. So I think really understanding the different avenues and experiencing them and talking and networking to people to hear the pros and cons helps you before you graduate your third year and you're given this contract on paper and you have no idea what, what to make of it. That's a really good point, Jackie. Something else I really think hit me hard as a private practice provider immediately out of residency was the patient's social economic situation and insurance company greatly influence the care that the patient provides. It doesn't influence my personal ability to treat them, but it definitely influences what the patient decides and how they go forward. So I can't believe how much ins and outs of each insurance company I've learned over the years. I'm not sure there's a way that you can learn that until you actually get into it. Yeah, it's trial and error, unfortunately. But I think it's something that you you need to have in, in your practice and learn and learn those rules and regulations. And it is ever evolving. So as soon as you find that medication that all the insurances cover, they're gonna change it and you're gonna have to, you know, learn the next medication. And I think keeping up on new evidence-based medicine, educating yourselves, 
talking to your colleagues and not getting stuck in this little rabbit hole of your own private practice will help you in the long run. Another very general topic, but I think it's important is that you really have to communicate with everybody and do not make assumptions about what people know about you and your training. So when you get to a new area, reach out to the vascular surgeons, reach out to the orthopedic surgeons. And if they blow you off, they blow you off, but at least you're introducing yourself and having open communication. Same thing in residency. If there's something that doesn't make sense and you don't understand it, tell your attending because there may be a great explanation for it, or there might be an error that you're catching for your attending. So having that open communication and being comfortable in your skin and knowing that you're well-trained is will really help the profession altogether if we really go out and help educate all the specialties about what podiatry does. So you already touched on some areas that students, residents, and younger practitioners might benefit from focusing on. Are there any others? And how can more seasoned podiatrists assist in getting this information out there? I think one great piece of advice for students, residents, and young practitioners is that anything that you're uncomfortable with, become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Meaning those cases that you don't think you want to do and you don't think you need to know how to do, that means that you probably need more work at it. So go into those ORs and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Literally make yourself confront those issues that you're having or those places that you're, things that you're lacking and hit them head on and don't shy away from them. I think one thing is when you're early and whether you're a resident or a student or a young practitioner is um, try not to burn bridges. And you may not think that you're burning bridges, but maintaining healthy relationships with all professions, all people that you run into, reps, people you go to dinner with. I mean, word gets around throughout the profession that you're in residency in this state and the rep context this rep in this state to help you get a job. So use the resources that you have. I think that's something that we kind of take for granted. And once you're done with residency, you don't think you're ever going to see those people again. They will be some of your best friends and best allies. The other thing is from me transporting from Columbus to Cleveland, I'm in brand new hospital systems and reaching out to old directors on how to get things approved and how to go through these processes. I mean, you never know who you're going to need help from. And I'm not saying you take advantage of people that you meet, obviously, but this world is very small and we can all help each other out. And I think the more we build a team approach to our profession, we'll get ahead. I think there's a lot of issues with people dogging other people or throwing people under the bus or this residency is better than another. I think we all just need to band together and push our profession as a unit and try and look out for one another. One thing I learned early in practice is if I see someone else's patient and they come to me for a second opinion, I reach out to that doctor and let them know, hey, your patient was here. Is there anything I should know? Be an open book with patients. And my token line was always, this is a snapshot of what happened. I don't know the full story of what your surgeon saw in the operating room. Don't throw another surgeon under the bus, whether it be a vascular surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, even if they did everything incorrectly but you just say, I wasn't there in the operating room and I don't know the exact situation that happened. I'm here to help you. And I always reach out to that attending and just say, this is so-and-so, I have them here just to give you a heads up and and let you know. And I think that really kind of touches on that don't burn bridges in the profession. I think another thing, now that we're kind of in the position that Jackie and I both are in as 
more seasoned practitioners. I think one thing that we can do is definitely be positive business coaches and leaders to the younger associates as they come in. You constantly hear that podiatry eats their own. And we have many examples of that between the two of us. We've heard stories, we've seen stories. Um, so one thing that I think the more seasoned generations of podiatrists can do is be a mentor, both medically, professionally, personally, to these younger associates as they come out. So again, we can push the profession forward and not keep it back where it is. I think one thing from seasoned generations, and now I guess I'm seasoned, I'm turning it <laughs> I think we need to look at the younger generations as non-threatening. So there's, we're not in competition, we're working together. So for me, I did not, I was not trained on MAS Bunions in residency. This has been a new fad since I've graduated. And I have gotten myself immersed in going to cadaver lab courses on it and doing about 30 of them before I ever did one in the operating room. And the reason being, and I asked the younger practitioners ideas of how to do it. And if I didn't feel comfortable doing it and I didn't feel confident, I would refer, if the patient came to me for an MIS bunion, I'd refer them to a younger professional who does them if I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And I think knowing your limitations and not feeling threatened by these younger, very well-trained residents and fellows that are graduating will help our profession overall. Everyone has a pair of feet. There's two of them. And there's a lot of feet in the countries. So we don't have to compete with one another and we should really help the younger professions, professionals kind of get seasoned and feel more confident with these procedures. What lessons do you feel you still have to learn or do, that you feel you will continue to learn as your career progresses? I think podiatry and medicine is forever changing. Like Jackie just hit on, like what you learn in residency is significant for what you do at that point in your career. However, as you evolve out of residency and into your practice, stay up to date in new technologies, reach out to people that you follow, whether it's on LinkedIn, social media, conferences, ask questions, gain insight. I just reached out to a guy on LinkedIn to figure out how I could get information on the products that he's using because I liked his technique and his outcomes. And he was so responsive on getting back to me and helping me find, you know, a rep in my area and courses that I could get into to, to reach and meet those same techniques that he's doing, which anyone in the profession that's willing to give information is going to help you. Yeah. CMEs are not just continuing medical education across off the box. I mean, they really do help you further your career and you have to take that into your own hands. Your education does not stop when you finish fellowship and you become an attending, and it doesn't stop once you're board certified. I find myself reading and doing more research and networking now than I ever have because I don't want to become that person that's doing the same procedure over and over again and not staying up to date with the latest technologies. Um, one thing that one of my failures in the profession and in life is that I take work very personally and I take it home. It's very difficult for me to turn off. And I have, I've tried to kind of emulate other physicians who have this, and that's still something that I'm trying to learn as my career evolves throughout the years is turning that off and enjoying my personal life and not taking work home with me. So I think as you, you are eating, breathing and living podiatry and residency and fellowship, and as a new practitioner, you get board certified and just keeping that all every single day in and and out, it's, good to let go. Um, I am not there yet. And I'm forever trying to learn how to do that. 
but you can learn that from other practitioners and other specialties as well. So Dr. Donovan, after residency, what made you decide to go on to fellowship training? So I'll, I will talk about, I just had a resident the other day ask me if I thought doing a fellowship was a good idea right now at this snapshot in time. And I will say getting any amount of education is fantastic. For me, when I graduated residency, I did not feel extremely confident in doing trauma and reconstructive pylons, deltoid repairs acutely and things of that nature. And I felt it can only help my education. Now where I'm at opening my own private practice, I am not doing a ton of trauma. And in Cleveland, ortho gets all of the trauma. So people look at me and they'll say, do you feel like that was a waste of your time spending a year taking 24 hour call every other day staying after for doing those surgeries. And I'll say no, because it was a fantastic learning experience for me. If you are burnt out at the end of residency and you feel like you're going to be miserable, you can't take another ounce of education in, then by all means, do not do that. Now, fast forward five years to me being in a private sector and seeing that if you want to open your own practice, doing a fellowship to buy you a year of a stable income while you're creating an LLC and getting credentialed with insurances once you're licensed is fantastic avenue. I don't even know that was an option at the time. I really thought there's no way you can open up your own private practice everywhere. So saturated and I can't do this on my own. But I think two reasons to do a fellowship is one, to learn as much as you humanly can in an extra year. And at that three-year snapshot, I realized I needed more. I felt I needed more training to be confident in that. So when I was on my own, I could take call at hospitals. And I also think that if you want to start a private practice, it's a great year to learn some of those nuances of running a practice and things that you didn't have time to learn in residency and also giving you that comfort to have a year to get kind of get your act together. So Dr. Quinn, I know you have experienced both professionally in the private sector and being an employee of a large hospital system. Are there any pros and cons that you can advise to young professionals as they're coming out? As I alluded to, I was in a very large private practice. I moved back home to be hospital employed and then actually moved back to the private practice. And while I was hospital employed, there's a, there's a ton of pros and cons to both. You know, in private practice, you have more autonomy, you have more time. Um, time is kind of I'll say independent because if you're running the practice yourself, you don't have as much time, but being employed in a large private practice group, I find that I have more time, resources. I have a lot of mentors in my current private practice. In the hospital situation, I did not have any mentors to go to, to ask questions to. So those are kind of the reasons that I kind of swung from one-to-one. -one. I think the hospital employed position definitely adds a lot of pros in that, you know, it's a stable salary. It is high benefits. The patients just kind of come to you because you have your own referral sources built into your system. So you don't have to spend a lot of time or energy on marketing. You don't have to deal with insurances because they have other people doing that for you. The big thing for me that pulled me out of that hospital situation is autonomy and control. Um, I didn't have control of what type of foot stuff was coming to me versus ortho. I didn't have control of where the ER consults were going. And I found that in the private sector, I had more control over my own personal practice and I found joy in that. So and I actually really also enjoy 
the business side of medicine. I'll touch on that as well, because when I graduated the ortho trauma fellowship, I thought for certain I wanted to be a part of a big ortho group. And I thought this was going to be a stamp or a feather in my cap to say, Dr. Donovan did this ortho trauma fellowship and we are going to bring her on and she could do all the foot and ankle. And I had, there was a neighboring orthopedic group that was hiring. And when I mentioned the group's name to the group I was working with who were hospital employed, they literally told me, don't even go to the interview because the stuff that you're going to get there is not going to be, you were, it's not going to go well. So meaning this the idea that I had in my head, which was really, what was really out there, I was going to have no control over what they were going to siphon off and take. And I was going to get left with the, the leftovers essentially. So again, I think having different perspectives and no, networking and knowing where you're going with this and who you know, and who can look out for you and give you some advice on if it's a good fit for you. Now, if you don't want to do surgery and you're the non-surgical podiatrist in an, at a hospital, and I'm not saying that's everywhere, then that's fantastic. And that's why you need to figure out what is a good fit for you and what you want out of your job and networking and asking around will help you get to where you need to be. I think just to build off of the end of what Jackie just said, you know, one thing that is really important is knowing the questions to ask to get the answers that you want. When I went into that hospital employed position, I didn't ask the right questions And looking back, had I known the questions to ask, I probably would not have taken the position. But you don't know that until you either get yourself into a position like that or have somebody to ask. And I think that's where our profession could really grow is opening the doors to mentorships, you know, whether it's through different organizations or the schools or the residencies, because as these opportunities grow for these younger professionals, they need people to ask the right questions to and know what questions to ask. Absolutely. So just a little sidebar, we're starting um, a group called Women in Podiatry to help mentor not only women, but show people that everyone can do this. And even though it seems like you're drowning, all we want you to do is just stay above water. And you can be a mom, you could be a private practitioner, you can be forefoot and rear foot certified and everyone can get this done. And we want to be an avenue for people to help them get to where they want to be. And not everyone's endpoint is the same, but to have a resource or a, a network to kind of help each other get through this crazy profession and get to where you want to be and be happy is important to both of us. As always, we appreciate your experiences and insights. Thanks to both Dr. Quinn and Dr. Donovan for being with us today. And don't forget to check out their previous podcast on hammer toe surgery, along with all the other episodes on podiatrytoday.com, Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. Join us next time for the latest in foot and ankle medicine and surgery from leaders in the field.